We'll be reading today from Genesis 45, 4 through 11. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. This is the word of the Lord. All right, if you brought a Bible with you, feel free to open to Genesis 37, where we're going to start off today and pull the sermon notes out as well that you got at the door. Uh, a quick preamble before we start. As Steve mentioned, this is our uh, 75th anniversary as a church, and so we're going through this year of the Bible together. This is our third week going through it, and uh, in addition to preaching through it on Sunday mornings and teaching in children's and youth ministries, we're also asking you to read it on your own, to read through the whole Bible throughout the course of this year, and I know some of you guys are participating in that. We put a little thing in the lobby this week um, that you might have seen when you came in. It's an opportunity for you to celebrate finishing each of the 66 books of the Bible. Uh, there's rocks there, and pick up one of those rocks if you finished reading Genesis this week and, and drop it in the barrel, and you might take a moment to thank God for Genesis, so reflect on what you've learned, and then when you finish Exodus, you get to drop another rock in, and so on and so forth. If about 200 of us read through the whole Bible, we'll have 13,000 rocks overflow in the lobby by the end of the year, and it'll be a a testimony to all that we've uh, accomplished and, and read of God's word together. So hope you'll participate in that. All right, well, let's get into the last part of Genesis. The, the last third of the book of Genesis tells the story of Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham, the grandson of Isaac, and the son of Jacob. He comes from the blessed people of Abraham, and yet his, mar his life is marked with suffering. And the story is uh, expansive and full in part because it answers a very normal human question. How can blessed people suffer? How could blessing and suffering coexist in one person's life? How did the blessed people of Abraham end up in slavery in Egypt at all? And here's the, here's the answer, just to spoil the story at the get-go. It's because when blessed people suffer, and they do, they can continue to look to God and ways to help other people. Blessing and suffering are not exclusive in Joseph's life, certainly not in Jesus's life, and not in our lives. Joseph's story models how blessing and cursing are integrated together, how they overlap with each other. Often in our minds, we sort of split them into two. We think that suffering is over here, and blessing is over here, and we're either living in one world or the other. 
And we assume that sometimes when suffering comes, it's a result of God withholding blessing from us or being absent from our lives. And likewise, when blessing comes, we sometimes assume that suffering will never be on its heels. And yet Joseph's story shows blessing comes through suffering and that suffering uh, does not preclude the blessing of God. Uh, that The two of them can coexist together. So we're going to look at Joseph's story in three parts. The first part is about all those who sinned against him, how Joseph bears the consequences for the sins of others. The second part looks at Joseph's choice. What does he do in response? How does he choose to respond to the suffering in his life? And then the last part, we're going to see what the results of the suffering are in Joseph's life, in Jesus' life, and in our lives today. So Joseph, how Joseph experiences the consequences of sins of other people. Let's pick up uh, in Genesis 37, verse 1. Um, Joseph lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan, and these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. Um, I'm reading the wrong passage here. Sorry, that's embarrassing. Uh, I meant to be in verse 3. All right, I was going to get there. Uh, Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that his father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Joseph's story is mixed with this blessing that comes from God and also this enormous family strife. Joseph's father, Jacob, sins against him by showing the self-centered favoritism, sort of born out of a narcissistic approach. Joseph is blessed by Jacob, not because of anything he is or does, but simply because of what he says about his father, that he's able to continue to have kids in his old age. And so Jacob sins against his son by favoring him. His preferential treatment ends up getting him in trouble with his brothers. And because of Joseph's privilege and his misplaced authority, there's understandable resentment from his brothers. It may be understandable, but that doesn't excuse it because his brother's resentment metastasizes into hatred and hatred ultimately into violence. Joseph's brothers sin against him by hating him, attempting to kill him, and ultimately selling him into slavery. Now, if you read the story this week, or maybe you remember it from flannel boards when you were a kid in Sunday school, um, you remember that Joseph goes up to his brothers and tells them all about this dream he had, about uh, how when he had this dream and he saw the future and there would be 11 stalks of wheat that would bow down to him. And his brothers, uh, understanding a dream and actually listening to someone else explain their dream for once, uh, say, you really think we're going to bow down to you? And the Bible says they hated him even more. Now the question is, where did that dream come from? Like who puts that dream in Joseph's mind? Most of our dreams are memories or projections or emotional experiences that we've had in the past or fears we have about the future, but they're not visions of what will actually come to pass, right? Our dreams don't enable us to see what's going to come, right? This is a result of God intervening in Joseph's life. Now, I've heard this story taught often that Joseph is being a punk and he shouldn't have been bragging to his brothers and it's his fault that he gets what's coming to him when he's sold into slavery. I, I don't think that's true and I also don't think it's helpful. Even if he is being obnoxious, even if he is being a braggart or whatever, no one deserves a sort of victim blaming that comes with, it's not proportional in any way to say, you shouldn't tell me about your dream, so I'm going to sell you into slavery. Like those two things 
don't go together, right? This is a story not of Joseph's failures, but of his brother's sins and hatred against him. Look at in uh, Genesis 37, verses 19 and 20. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Listen to that. We will see what becomes of his dreams. His brothers are operating on the same sort of blessing and suffering, being mutually exclusive sort of frame we talked about before. We might paraphrase that as, we're going to use suffering and persecution to drive out blessing from his life. But actually, Joseph's story tells a different story, that it is through suffering that blessing will be made known, and it'll be shown what it was for. So they sell him into slavery. They decide there's not much money in murder, but there's more money in uh, in slavery, and so they sell him to the Ishmaelites, and who take him off to Egypt. So much for being the blessed son, the preferred son. What good is blessing if it leads to this kind of suffering? So Joseph goes down to Egypt, and yet blessing persists in his life. Even in slavery, he's able to be successful. If you jump down to Genesis 39, the blessing of God shows itself again in Joseph's life. Look at Genesis 39.4. So Joseph found favor in his sight, that refers to Potiphar, and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. And from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, Listen to this. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and in field. So Potiphar left all he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything. And then the only thing we know about Potiphar is that he loved to eat, right? But the only thing he was concerned about was how much food he could get. Did you hear how the blessing of the Lord is still on, um, on Joseph, even in the midst of slavery? even in the midst of suffering, right? That blessing and suffering continue to exist in his life together. Even in the midst of slavery, things are going well. How is that possible, right? Like, how could anything be going well in the midst of slavery? If he was blessed, wouldn't he be out of this sort of suffering? But no, the two things are folded over each other in Joseph's story. Because uh, his blessing, the blessing continues even while suffering continues. And the suffering's about to get worse, right? Because while he's in Potiphar's house, he's built this new life for himself, Potiphar's wife begins throwing herself at him, using her power and her authority to try to manipulate him into sleeping with her. And Joseph resists over and over out of integrity and out of fear of God. And verse 10 says, And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. Insulted by her, by Joseph's refusals, Potiphar's wife harasses him, blames him, and ultimately uses her power to put him into prison. Much like sexual harassment today or sexual assault today, it's an unjust situation where the powerful prey on the weak, using their authority to force themselves on someone else. And so Joseph's master takes him, puts him into prison, and into the king's prison where the most dangerous criminals are put. What an unjust situation. Can you imagine if Joseph's story ended here? Like the warning would be, the blessing of God doesn't count for much, right? Life's going to be painful and it's going to be hard and you might as well get used to it, right? That'd be the end of the story. That'd be such a depressing story for us teaching children's ministry. But it doesn't end there, thankfully. Look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. 
to be blessed in the midst of prison, right? That's, that's suffering and blessing folded on top of each other. The, the last part of the story of being sinned against is when even Joseph's cellmates forget him and ignore him. They forget what he's done, they forget what he's accomplished, and he's left wallowing in prison. The breadth and depth of Joseph's suffering as a result of other people's sin is staggering. Right? It's almost comical, and if you're familiar with the story, you kind of forget about it, right? That this one person is the victim not only of, um, of domestic violence by his brothers and family strife, but also being a victim of human trafficking. He's also a victim of slavery. He's also a victim of false imprisonment. He's a victim of sexual assault, all in one person, right? These are some of the worst traumas that someone could experience, and he folds them all into one life. These losses are real, and as Joseph will say at the end of the story in Genesis 50, they were intended for evil. They're not sins that Joseph is going to look back on fondly, grateful for what his uh, friends, family, cellmates, and employers have done to him. And God intervenes against evil a lot in Genesis. He intervenes against it in, at Babel and Sodom with the flood. Why doesn't he intervene now? Why does he let Joseph experience so much suffering at the hands of other people? And especially if he's supposed to be the blessed one, the one who inherits the Abrahamic covenant, why doesn't God protect him more? Before we get to the answer for that, if, even if we can get to the answer for that, let's think about today as well. Joseph's story tells us something important about suffering. The blessing does not prevent it. In fact, sometimes blessing and suffering go together, like a hand in a glove. We talked last week about some of the ways that blessing is described in the Bible. The way that blessing is uh, the way we were, when God reminds us of what we were created for and what we long for in heaven. Things like community, relationships, the blessing of children, meaningful work, those are all blessings. And yet those blessings often come with suffering. To be blessed with kids and to be blessed as a parent it's wonderful, but there are as few sufferings as deep as being hurt by your own children. Friendships are a blessing, right? It's not good for us to be alone. But friendships can often come with deep betrayals when friends gossip about us or ridicule us. A career is a blessing. A job is a blessing. And yet our jobs and our careers can often come with deep frustrations, exploitations, and discouragement. Marriage is a blessing, certainly. Yet so many marriages come with the suffering of infidelity, beratement, and even divorce. Old age is a blessing, right? Proverbs 16 says that gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. It is blessed to be old. And yet old age, <laughs> old age can come with deep suffering as well, can't it? The suffering of physical pain, bereavement, and loneliness. Blessings and sufferings are not exclusive. They come together. And Joseph's story shows us that suffering comes even to the most blessed people. Of course, this doesn't end only in Joseph's life. We see this in Jesus' life. Jesus is the blessed son of the Father, and yet he experiences great suffering. Think about communion, the institution of communion. What does Jesus say when he picks up the bread that represents his own death and breaks it? Right? The first thing it says is that he blesses it. Right? He blesses his own suffering. That suffering and blessing go together. Well, let's get back to Joseph. He's still in prison now, the point of the story, and he's waiting and waiting and waiting. Will God do anything to deliver him? And God does an odd thing. He gives Pharaoh a dream, a dream about cows and rivers that on the surface doesn't really make any sense, and no one can tell him what it means. The wise men and the magicians, or as the New Testament calls them, the magi, have no idea what, is going, what to make of this. 
And so the only person that anyone has heard of that might be able to interpret dreams is Joseph. He's the one who's been forgotten and who has suffered, is now sent for. In Genesis 41, verse 14, it says this, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him up out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. I don't know why it includes the shaving. I guess that's a biblical mandate to shave. I'm sorry. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I wonder how, how would you respond in this moment? Before, before we read his response in verse 16, um, do you respond with, oh yeah, I can do that. Sure, yeah, I'm, I, yep, I've got that capacity, right? But for Joseph, it's a time to remind himself of his reliance on God. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Hey, remind me, what was Pharaoh's self-esteem? Like, how, how did he see himself in the world? Did he see himself as a normal person like you and I? No, Pharaoh saw himself as a god, right? a god among men. And yet Joseph, to his face, says, you are not the one who knows, and I am not the one who knows, but only God knows. Joseph cho- chose faithfulness and integrity in this time of suffering. Rather than use the sins of others as an excuse to compromise, Joseph chose to live in a way that honored God. Joseph trusts God, uh, knowing that he is good, even as his life experience has included great suffering. suffering. Now, God had given this dream to Pharaoh in order that Joseph would be able to interpret it, that the blessing of God would be shown. And so Joseph listens to the dream and tells Pharaoh about all the blessing and suffering that's going to come to Egypt. You know, remember, if you've read this story before, that uh, what the dream means is that there's going to be seven years of abundance, seven years of blessing, we might say, followed by seven years of famine or seven years of suffering. And uh, Joseph's point to Pharaoh, which I think is important for us to hear as well, is that blessing is going to be accompanied with suffering. And during the time of blessing, and this is really important, that we prepare for the time of suffering. I don't think this is just about agriculture or taxation policy, but I think this is a lesson for all of us to hear about the spiritual life, that we use the time of blessing to prepare for the time of suffering, because the the existence of blessing doesn't mean suffering is never coming. So Pharaoh appoints Joseph to oversee his plan and gives Joseph immense power to carry it out. And we're glad about that, right? Because Joseph's the sort of person that we'd want to elect as governor or congressman today. He's shown that he doesn't abuse power, that he lives with integrity, and that he's going to use his authority to help other people. Joseph's character has been revealed in Egypt, and it's been impressive. He's continued to use his talents and abilities to help other people. He organized his Potiphar's house when he's a slave. He's interpreted the dream of others while he's in prison. He's continued to move towards people rather than away from them. Because often suffering causes us to turn inward on ourselves, to be focused on what we are missing out on. But Joseph has learned an important lesson, one that we learn as well, that in the midst of suffering, if we find meaningful projects that help other people, it helps us to have meaning in our life, even in the midst of suffering. So we have those same choices during suffering as well, whether it's through the consequences of other people's sins or the natural suffering that comes with the fallen world. We have a choice of whether we're going to turn inward or we're going to move outward towards others, whether we'll ignore God or we'll continue to turn our eyes towards him. And rather than becoming self-centered, Joseph persists in moving outward towards other people. Of course, um, 
if this was the end of the story, again, I know I've said that already, but if this were the end of the story, the story would be very humanistic, right? It would be about, you know, Joseph ran away or was pushed away from a dysfunctional family with a sort of backward fundamentalist uh, upbringing, and he moved into the big city of Egypt, and there he found people who appreciated him and understood his genius, and he's never going back there for Thanksgiving, right? Like, let's just focus on, on the good life he's created. But the story in the third act brings up a, a really meaningful lesson for all of us, because Joseph's brothers are going to come back on the scene, and Joseph's going to have the, the opportunity to use his power to bring about revenge. And this is a question of what is the good of suffering? Is the good of suffering that gives us an opportunity to take vengeance on those who have hurt us? Or is there some good that God can bring out of the suffering in our lives? So let's uh, look at Genesis 45 and see how Joseph responds. So the famine continues throughout um, the region, from Egypt all the way up to Canaan. And uh, Joseph's brothers go down to Egypt to try to buy some food, never thinking they would run into their brother. But when they do, Joseph hides the truth of who he is. And he sends them on kind of a wild goose chase that takes up three chapters of Genesis. He tells them to come back and then go away and then come back and then go away. Um, and I've, I've wondered all week, why is this in here? Why is Joseph doing this? Like, is he pulling a prank on them? Um, and I think it's, I don't know. I don't know Joseph's mind. But it, it seems like the narrator, Moses, is bringing to the surface this question for all of us. What would you do if you had the chance to get back at the people who sinned against you this deeply? Would you punish them? Would you reward them? Would you ignore them? Would you let their own sins fall on their own head? But this is what Joseph does in chapter 45, verse 3. Joseph says to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. That's a very Bible-y way of saying they were scared. <laughs> they were scared he was going to kill him. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. <laughs> let, me just, let me just remind you of how deeply you sinned against me. You sold me into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph's suffering is eased by knowing the way that he has helped other people around him and the way that his suffering has been used by God for good. Joseph saw the way that even though people had hurt him and wounded him and sinned against him and those losses were real, that God had taken what was wicked and turned it into something good. Later on in Genesis 50, he'll summarize it this way. Uh, in Genesis 50, 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This tension between blessing and suffering and how God can hold it together is something that is unknowable to the human mind. It's, it's what we often refer to as providence. How can God work together um, those things that humans mean for evil and bring about a good plan as a result? It's beyond our comprehension. But what Scripture affirms continuously is that God does it. That God encourages us to find meaning in the midst of evil in order to face the trauma of life by knowing that he is in control. God can bring great good out of even great evil. And Joseph's story is about having hope in the midst of this suffering, knowing that God is faithful, even when people aren't. Um, uh, Viktor Frankl called this finding a redemptive perspective on your suffering. What good could come out of this? Uh, and as Christians, we develop the assumption that God can bring good out of even evil. It helps us to avoid despair 
alienation and self-centered cynicism. Because Joseph sees the evil intent behind what his brothers have done. But more than that, more important than that, he sees God's good that has come from it. This isn't to, to invalidate the pain that you might feel or I might feel in suffering. And I certainly don't want to encourage us as a church to go over to people who are suffering and say, oh, don't worry, it doesn't really hurt. God's going to bring something good out of it. That's, that's the worst type of advice. That's the advice Job's friends gave him that God uh, rejects. But from the first person view, when we're able to make an assumption, to able to have faith that God will bring good out of suffering, enables us to experience pain without hopelessness. This week, there's a woman in our church who I have a lot of respect for, who's going through a lot of physical pain, and I emailed her and asked her how she's doing. And she responded back with a fairly lengthy email. And it was one line about the suffering she was going through, and then three paragraphs of the good that God has brought out of it, in terms of how she's been an encouragement to people, how people have been an encouragement to her, how it's helped her to spend time with God. And I thought, that's what I want to be like when I grow up, right? I, I don't want to be the person who spends three paragraphs complaining about the pain and ignoring the good that God can bring out of it. And I don't want that for you either. Joseph sees the evil intended behind it, but he sees God's good behind it. Well, um, the last thing I want to say to you. Joseph's story is important because it teaches us about blessing and suffering, but it's even more important because it points us to what Jesus is like. You know, Joseph is the beloved son. He's the one who receives blessing. And yet it is Jesus who would be the beloved son of God. And Joseph is the one who's betrayed by his brothers, who's rejected, not because of what he's done, but because of their own insecurities, fears, and hatred. But it's Jesus who would come to earth and be rejected by us for many of the same reasons. And Joseph would experience pain and loss when he'd be sold into slavery. But Jesus is the one who would be faithful even in the midst of greater suffering to death on the cross. And while Joseph's suffering was used to bring about good and to bring many people into a place of safety and security, it's Jesus' suffering that would be even greater. That would not just help one generation in one place have food, but would help all people at all times be able to have an eternity with God. And while Joseph would be elevated to the right hand of power, the right hand of Pharaoh, and would have everyone bend their knee at him, it's Jesus who even at his birth would have the wise men and the magi bending their knee before him, and who after his resurrection would be elevated to the right hand of God on high. And then one last connection between Joseph and Jesus Judah, one of Joseph's brothers, was a wicked man. Uh, he was a man who uh, abused his power. He's someone who deserved to be cursed. He's someone who harmed Joseph. And yet, later in his life, he's the one who would uh, trust in Joseph, trust his, the truth of what he said, and entrust his life to him. And as a result, Judah would end up being blessed. And from Judah's line, David would come, and ultimately Jesus would come. But there is hope for Judah gives us hope as well. That like Judah, we have betrayed the one who is to come. We've betrayed the beloved son. Like Judah, we've, out of our own insecurities and fears, pushed God away. And yet, like Judah, by having faith in the promised one, we can have life in the future. Well, a couple of things for you to reflect on and pray about this week. Um, Joseph experienced the consequences of the sins of others. And you're experiencing the consequences of sins of others. Now, you're experiencing the consequences of your own sin, too, but you're probably experiencing suffering as a result of what other people have done to you in ways that they've hurt you. Imagine that you're Joseph. What would it have been like for you to bear the consequences 
of the sins of your family, your employer, your neighbors? What do you think you would have done in response? And how does Joseph's example challenge you? And then secondly, Joseph's story shows that there is a redemptive value in suffering, that God can use uh, what is intended for evil for his good purposes. How can his story help us have a hope in the midst of suffering we experience as well? Uh, Let's close our time in prayer. God, we see how our sins can put a weight on the shoulders of others. Um, We see how we've sinned in ways that have hurt the people around us, have hurt ourselves, and we're truly sorry for that. Jesus, thank you that you endured suffering for our benefit, that even though you deserve to be blessed, you suffered. And in so doing, we receive your blessing. We see in Joseph's story a pointer to you, and we're grateful for that, God. Amen.